Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah, a prophet to Israel, particularly to the nation of Judah, an advisor to, among others, King Hezekiah, writes this by inspiration, or speaks this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it was written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and, and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as you're getting to know me, it strikes me that uh, I've only got a few stories to tell. And so at some point, I'm going to start repeating myself, but I haven't to this point. Uh, one one uh, spring in 19, 1998, I, I was a seminary student, and I took a class where we got to do a study tour of Israel. And it was great. It, it was three weeks. One of the highlights, though, actually was spending three days in Jordan. And we visited Petra. And if you don't know what Petra is, think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they go through and they see that like city carved into the, the, the walls of a canyon. That's actually a real place. That wasn't a Hollywood set. That's, that's Petra in Jordan. And, and we went there. We spent a whole day there. And there's a couple different cultures that built there in, in the valley itself is a Greco-Roman city, just beautifully preserved. It's amazing. And then on the walls of the canyon is a city carved by the Nabataeans, I guess, uh, I look at Josh like he's going to affirm what I said. He says, he, he says, yes, I guess, or I'll interpret that as a yes. Um, by the Nabataeans, it's, an, it, it's amazing. And so we, we ate lunch there. It was great. It's, it's a touristy place. Um, uh, and, and, and then the, our guide and teachers came to us and said, okay, you've got an hour before the bus leaves. You can go to one of two places. You can go up to a high place, and it was really, really high, which... This is like profound. That's why they call it a high place, right? It was, it was way up on the very top of the canyon. You, you can either walk up to that, and there's these little zigzag sort of things uh, that you can, stairs that you can get to get up there, at, and then get back down. That'll take you about an hour. Or you, you, can, you can go on a hike about like it's a mile and a half away, and there's another building much like that. That treasury building is the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade building. There's another building just like it. You probably haven't got time for two. And so I, I was sitting there, and, and we're trying to figure out where to go, and, and I was with a, a college professor of mine, and I was an engineer, and then there was an army ranger captain. This sounds like a joke, right? Uh, an engineer, a seminary professor, and a, 
and, and, and an army ranger captain walked into a Nabataean city. Um, no, so, and, and so the, I was with that group, and they said, well, we should do both. And I, I, I'm, I'm there, right? I, I'm, I'm there for the ride. I'm there to see as much as I can. I'll go with. I'll go with. And so we have to run. Now, the seminary professor, Carl Laney, was like a marathon runner. The Army Ranger captain was like the most incredible physical specimen I've ever seen in my life. I even told him that. And he said, well, Todd, I get paid to work out. I go, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad you're on my side. Um, and, and so off we go. And we run. And they are and they are leaving me behind. And I'm like 31 years old at this point, right? For some of you, that sounds old. For, for a lot of you, it sounds young. I th- didn't think I was old. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm starting to lag. And, and, and we get to this building, and it's awesome. And then they notice, they notice, I'm, I'm barely up there, and I'm barely to the point, and they say, hey, uh, we can rock scramble up to the side and be up on top of it. That'd be some great pictures. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And so up we go, and, and then I'm barely there able to take a picture before they go, oh, look at the time. We better hustle if we're going to make it to the high place. And so rock scramble down, jogging along, and then we have to, we, and it's like a mile and a half back, and, then we, and it's, it's in Jordan in May. It's like stinking hot, right? And I'm dying at this point, but up to the high place I go, and we're on all these switchbacks, I guess you call them, and we're jogging up this thing, and, and then I start to lag, and, and for those of you who know Carl Laney, you'll know what he did. He sees that I'm falling behind. I'm, I'm like gasping. I'm dying over here, and, and so he shifts into the dreaded encouragement mode. You're looking great, Todd. Keep it up. Man, you're doing great. And, I, and, and inside, I'm thinking, shut up, Carl. I'll get there when I get there. But I was too tired to sin. And I couldn't say that. I just kind of <laughs> nod at him like this. And I was dead tired by the time I got up to that high place. And there was no blood. There was no evidence of sacrifice, nothing like that. And that's what I wanted to see at that moment. Um, all that to say, I, I have never, that was as exhausted as I had ever been in my life. And because uh, I was totally spent, I had nothing in the tank, I had no buildup of, of being in shape, nothing like that. And we go on this incredible hike, rock scramble up this thing. And I, I, I made it down, so here I'm, I'm alive. Like we survived all that. I have never been so physically exhausted in my life. Um, and, but, but, but that, that pales in comparison to what many of us and, and probably even some of you feel right now. You're, you're not like you just didn't run a marathon, but you are tired and you are weary and you are frustrated because we are a broken people that live in a broken world full of other broken people. And, and, and if you can relate at all to that, then Isaiah 40 is for you. It's for you. If you're here this morning and, and, and maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I, I would really invite you to consider this question. What do you really want in life? What do you really want in life? Are you tired of pursuing things and just never quite getting them and they don't ever satisfy? Does it feel like you're in perpetual motion, going nowhere, and, 
And in, instead of getting those things, wh- what would it be like for you to get God instead of those things? What would it be like for you to get God instead of those things? For uh, the, the rest of you, you, you are followers of Jesus. I would just ask you this, are you tired? Are you tired? And if so, what will it look like for you today to wait for the Lord? What might that look like? So quick context, we've said this over and over again. We've come to our end, the end of our series on Isaiah 40, Behold Your God. It, is, it comes to a climax today. Next week, we begin looking at Galatians, more on that in a moment. I'll remind you, though, that in the previous chapter, it was announced to good King Hezekiah that the kingdom of Judah was going to be sent into exile as punishment for their rebellion, their failure to keep the covenant. And so Isaiah 40, the very next chapter, I would argue that that's Isaiah, or that's the Lord's good provision. It's the provision of his word, his promises for his people, for his people, because they're going to be going through horrific times while in exile in Babylon. And God's people were to be comforted by these truths that are found in Isaiah 40. These truths spoke of the majesty of God, hence the behold your God. It's repeated over and over again, and that's the name of this series. And now this whole chapter comes to a conclusion. And it begins, ironically, with a complaint. God echoing the words of of, of the people when they say in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. If we want to think, God is like anticipating what they're going to say, and he's giving them his response a hundred years in advance. It's like provision for them when they get there. And, and, And what's going to be on the lips of the people while in exile, because it was probably already on their lips as they're going through the difficult times of life, they're They're griping. They're they're pouring their heart out, their frustrations to God, and and it's really two things. God, why don't you see what's going on? Or or if that's not the case, then, okay, you see us, but maybe you just don't care. Maybe you're aware of what's going on, but it's not moving the needle for you at all. And and, and both both would have made sense, I suppose. Both those complaints would have made sense to the people of Israel. After all, they're age-old complaints, Right? They make sense if we're talking about a human caretaker. That's the kind of thing that we would say of a human who's watching over us, who has responsibility for us. What, don't you see what's going on? Or, or, or maybe you see and, and you just don't care. But as, as we can see from the Lord's response, we, we would dare not just reduce God to that kind of human level, that kind of human expectation. The kind of complaints that we would make against a human they really don't apply to God. And that's, that's what he's going to make clear here. Because the Lord, as we've seen in Isaiah 40, he wants to be treated as he defines himself to be, totally other than us. He is radically different than us. He's not merely the greatest human being who ever lived, and, and we relate to him on that level. Like, I don't know who's the greatest human ever lived. Like Batman, right? Bruce Wayne, greatest human being who, that's a joke. Okay, you're supposed to laugh at that. Um, the, the greatest human being who ever lived. No, God is qualitatively different than that. Qualitatively different. 
Remember what I said a couple weeks ago. God is more unlike us than we are unlike anything in the created world. That is, the distance between us and God is infinitely great, far greater than the distance between us and, remember I, I, I talked about sea monkeys a couple, and you're like, yeah, I remember that. You called us sea monkeys. No, I didn't call you sea monkeys. I said we're more like sea monkeys than we are like God, right? We could say of another human being, why don't you see? Why don't you care? But we can't say that of God. Now, I would argue from this passage, though, it's okay to be disappointed with our circumstances. It's okay to feel the injustice of this world or just to be frustrated with how things are going. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to wonder. Honestly, bringing complaints to God is okay. After all, it's authorized by the Bible itself. It, I mean, I think this passage raises a, a bit of a question for us. These people are, are voicing complaints. God, why don't you see? God, why don't you care? And, and, and we might ask, well, how is Judah's gripes to God, how is that God's word to us? Does, does that make sense, that question? Or like when David confesses his sin, maybe this is an easier one that will help us get to the answer. When David confesses his sin to God in Psalm 51, we, we could ask, how are David's sin confessions to God, how is that God's word to us? And, and I think the answer is, is that David's confession to God is like inspired confession. This is, it's God authorizing, instructing, it's, this is what I want you to do, and this is how I want you to do it. And, and I would argue it's kind of the same way with these complaints. It, 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 this is inspired text. It, it's a record. And God has put the complaints of his people to him in his word, I think telling us it's okay to be frustrated. It, it's, it's okay and it's right to go to God and say, what is going on? And, and we might even ask, God, don't you see? God, don't you care? Because notice that the response of the Lord in the rest of this chapter, indeed the whole entire chapter, is not, how dare you ask such a thing? He grants to his people the dignity of response. But the response is telling. The response is telling. Look at verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's response, he dignifies Judah's gripes with a response, and he asks two questions, and we've seen this before in earlier in chapter 40. These are rhetorical questions that the, the answer is assumed. The people already know the answer to their questions. Do you not know? Have you not heard? They should go back to their confession. They should go back to what they already know. But remember the complaint, God, don't you see what's going on? 
Remember, this was God's provision to Judah in anticipation of an exile that was going to be horrific, right? Don't you see, God? Don't you care? And and the prophetic response, the response from heaven, when we ask, don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? Is remember who the Lord is. Israel, behold your God. It was as the, the majesty of God was as true for Israel as when they were going through the exile as it was when God was leading them out in victory out of Egypt. Nothing had changed with regard to the majesty and wonder of God. And Israel needed to remember that. What, what did they need to remember? Well, they were given more theology more theology. First, they were told God is the eternal one. He's the eternal one. When we say that God is everlasting or eternal, we're saying that that God's relationship with time is radically different than, than that of any other or than any created being because time itself is a created entity. God is Lord over time. He rules over time. He transcends time. And, and that's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we're so subject to time. But we dare not think that of God. He is not subject to time. Time is subject to him. God has neither beginning nor end. And he is praised throughout the Bible for this. Psalm chapter 90, verses two through four. Before the mountains were brought forth. So this is like, you know, what do we think is basically saying, God, you're older than dirt, right? Is what they're saying there. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You already were God before there were mountains and you're still God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Psalm 102, verses 12 and then 27. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations but you are the same and your years have no end. What does that even mean? That God's everlasting. Some people think that God's everlasting, that is he's always existed and has always existed through time once the space-time continuum was created. Others see God as timeless. He stands outside of time. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what God's relationship to time is other than he's the creator and he is God and he is everlasting and he is eternal. And all of the things that apply to us in our finiteness, they do not apply to God. The Bible is clear. God knows the past from the present, from the future though. But we know that God's never caught by surprise. God never runs out of time. He never runs out of time. Because he is the Lord, everything happens right on time. Always. God never is like, oh man, I was a little late on that one. Sorry, sorry. No, everything happens exactly when he ordains it to happen. Time makes us nervous. Time passes either too quickly. I know for like maybe a couple of you are like, man, I hope this sermon goes on forever. I can't believe it's been going for 20 minutes already. Some of you are like, this is taking forever, right? You're experiencing time as a finite person. I'm helping you with that right now, right? But it's not that way with God. 
It's not that way with God. He is the everlasting Lord. God's omnipotent. That's another thing that we're told here. He's all-powerful. What do we mean by that? He has the capacity to do all things consistent with his will and nature. And of course, that doesn't mean that God can do anything. You know, people like to think, well, can, can God make a square circle? And, well, that's just nonsense. So, so, so God doesn't do the nonsensical. That doesn't even make any sense. That's just gibberish. Can, can God make a, 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 a weight so big that he can't lift it? I don't even know what that means. That, that's just more gibberish, right? What I do know is that God can do whatever he wants to do, whatever he wants to do. And he is not limited by the things that limit us. The things that we might say well, we can do, but God can't, like lie or sin. God, God can't do those things. But that's nothing to write home about for us. I can do something God can't do. Look at me. Yeah, you're a sinner. That's pathetic, right? God's not. God is not that way. We, we see God's power. I, I won't go through all the verses in the interest of time. Um, God's power is seen in creation, in, in his governance over everything, God's power is seen in redemption, right? The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God's power is seen in judgment as well. He is praised for all these things, his power in all these things. And, and, and that should be a great comfort to us that God is the all-powerful one. It should have been comfort to, to Israel. When, when we're persecuted and oppressed, Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When we're in the midst of temptations, God's powerful enough to give us a means of escape. We can stand up under it. God's ability to answer prayer is jaw-dropping. He's able to do more than all we ask or imagine. He's not limited by our own thinking, our own imagination. And God's able to do all that he has promised, and that should give us great confidence in him. Jude 24 and 25, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. He is the all-powerful one. He's also the omniscient one. Israel was told that as well. God knows all things, all things that can be known. All things past, present, and future, from the momentous to the trivial. He knows the number of hairs on your head, both before your shower this morning and after. He knows all those things. He knows them all comprehensively, certainly, immediately. He knows all things in the future as certain as he knows all things that have already happened. He knows what will happen. He knows what could have happened. He knows what would have happened if things would have been different. Todd, what if you would have eaten Cheerios instead of Raisin Bran? He knows exactly what I would, he, he knew then what I would be saying right now if that were the, the you know, uh, that's a very profound counterfactual, we call those. But, uh, anyway, but he knows those things. He knows it all. More than that, he knows our hearts in a manner that we cannot know ourselves. That's both comforting and frightening. Israel wondered whether God saw what was going on. Well, he did. Absolutely. He knew the gory details of everything they were going through better than they did. He knew the situation inside and out, before and after, right side up, upside down, exhaustively, perfectly, from every possible angle and perspective. How silly of us to think, I wonder if God actually knows. Oh, yeah. 
he does. And what that means for you is that he knows precisely what you are going through right now. Precisely, exhaustively, from every imaginable angle, he knows and he gets it. So in summary, the the complaint by Israel was, God, don't you see? God, don't you care? But notice that the heavenly response to these complaints doesn't really direct, it doesn't directly address the substance. It, It can't be the case that God doesn't know about Judah's position or trial. It's not the case he doesn't know about yours. Nothing will ever nor can be ever hidden from God. It can't be the case that God's powerless to help. He can do anything and everything that he wants to do. More than that, his control is such that apparently Judah was exactly where God wanted them to be, just as you are right where God intends you to be. God's God's response could have been like, Judah, you think I'm powerless? Powerless to help you? I put you there. He could say the same thing to you and me. Do you think I'm powerless to help? I put you there. I put you there. Judah's captivity and judgment were going to be an exercise of God's power and sovereign control, not something that happened because God was powerless to stop it. But that still doesn't address the question, though, that second question, God, don't you care? Don't you care? And the heavenly response was not, well, of course I care. The heavenly response was, behold your God. Behold your God. And we think, but that doesn't address the question. Maybe he should have just said, of course I care. But he didn't do that. And it's not the first time that he responded that way, and it's, it's not going to be the last. Think of the book of Job. Job went through horrific things, right? He was harassed, tormented, attacked, harmed by Satan, and Job didn't understand why. The interesting thing for us is, as we read the book of Job, we know exactly what was going on. We know why Job was, why Job, Job was being harassed, but he didn't. And, and the common thinking, that of his friends was, well, you're getting what you deserve. That's the way that the universe works. You put bad things in, you get bad things out. What goes around, comes around. Hashtag karma right? You do bad things, bad things happen to you. That's what his friends kept saying over and over again. Actually, that's what the book of Proverbs says as well. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things, good things happen to you. Job was adamant, though, that he hadn't sinned. He hadn't done the bad things that would warrant this kind of judgment. He said he was blameless. What he was going through was not fair. He wanted an audience with God where he could plead his case. And eventually, at the end of the book of Job, Job's prayers If only I could stand before God and plead my case. Job's prayer was answered. Remember the great theologian Garth Brooks, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, this is where where God answered Job's prayer, right? But what's interesting is is God doesn't tell Job, you know what, I made a bet with Satan that you would stand up under the persecution and you won, thank you, good job. He doesn't say that. He never tells him what we actually know. We know why Job was going through what he went through. Job doesn't. We're given the explanation. Job is never given that explanation. Why not? But Job responds. I mean, God responds to Job. God takes Job on a tour of all the wondrous things that he had ever made. 
Wow, Job, you want me to explain how I run the moral universe? Well, can you make this or can you make that? What about this? Can you do that? Oh, you can't do that, can you? Job is left putting his hand over his mouth, wondering why he didn't listen to more Garth Brooks, right? And we, we might think that Job, well, I think God was just bullying Job, right? Bullied him into submission. Well, can you do that? Can you do that? Can you do that? Kind of this sneering disregard. But I don't think that's what's going on at all in the book of Job. Job didn't get answers to his questions. He got something better. Job got God. God responded to Job and gave him himself. The lesson that Job learned directly and immediately is that often there are reasons for things that are beyond us or are not for us to know right now. But we can always trust God. Israel had ample evidence that the Lord cared for them. So there had to be some reason for what Judah was was enduring other than, God, you just don't care. Judah didn't get a strong rebuttal to their complaint. Don't you see? Don't you care? What, What Israel got, though, they got something better. They got God. I think we need to remember this. As we read Isaiah 40, some of you get bad medical diagnoses, some experience difficulty with work or employment, some have been victims of crime and harassment, some just profound disappointment about how things are going, maybe with your family, maybe with friends. And the question honestly comes to your lips, Lord, don't you see? Don't you care? Lord, don't you understand? And then it feels like the silence is deafening. You think, well, Job got an answer, and here Israel's getting an answer. And maybe you feel like, if, Lord, I'm at my breaking point. I, I could persevere if you could just give me some idea about what's going on. Just one hint, one word. I'd even be willing to take the Job route, right? Reveal yourself to me. Show me how awesome you were. I could endure it if you will just do that. If you could explain yourself to me. But the book of Job and Isaiah 40 are here to help us in those times when we don't get an explanation from God. Because God never promised us answers to all of our questions. He never promised us a pain-free life. He never promised that this broken world that we have broken would make sense. But he did promise us himself. And I think that's ultimately better. If we were to return to verse 27 up at the very top, we'd see the problem and the answer are contained in their questions. The problem, they'd reduce God to a human level, thinking that God was there to meet their aspirations, their ideas of what life ought to be like. Why are we here? What's going on? Do something. And ironically, the people of Judah had answered themselves even as they asked the questions of God. Don't you see? Don't you care? Go back to the questions. How were they framed? My way is hidden from the Lord. Well, who's, what's, what's that word, the Lord? That's the covenant name. 
As, as they confessed, my, my way is hidden from the Lord. They were saying, it, it was almost like a contradiction. My way is hidden from the Lord. The, who's the Lord? The covenant God of the universe who made an arrangement with Israel, proving that he loved Israel. He loved them. And they said, my way is hidden from my God. They couldn't even help themselves. They knew the truth so much. It's my God. My, your way can't be hidden from your God. They confessed what was true even as they were complaining. It seems they'd forgotten who the Lord actually was and had replaced him with a cheap substitute. Something that looks more like the God of the prosperity gospel than the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And the God of the prosperity gospel is a cheap imitation of the real thing. Man, I would really serve the Lord if he would give me this. Or, boy, if it, God, if you would just act in this way, and it might even be a good thing, heal this person, provide here, do something about injustice there. But we want God to act that way because we think that is the best path. And, and, and God isn't here to justify himself. He is here to offer himself to us, though. When the brokenness of this life comes crashing on you, remember who God is. Remember that he is your God. Remember that he is your Lord. You might not get answers, but you will get him. And what does that look like? Well, verse 29. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might. He increases strength. God does help his people. Far from being weak, God, you're, are you powerless enough to, to help? No, he actually is so powerful. He gives power to the weak. And as something I said a couple weeks ago too, that Israel was to remember here, all that God is, he is for his people. Throughout this series, you have been asked to behold your God. The theology in Isaiah 40 is amazing. So much of what we know about God that he has revealed to us about himself, it's contained in this one short chapter. I mean, think about it. We've learned that God is the Savior. He is the all-powerful one. He is the all-knowing one, the all-wise one. He is the glorious one, the eternal one, the self-sufficient one, the unchanging one, the righteous judge, the sovereign Lord. He is the God who is high and lifted up, wholly other than us, and yet stoops down to help us. That's just a small survey of all that God is. And the reason that a theological survey, if you will, to like make it sound dreadful, <laughs> was important, the reason that this profound theology was the divine response to the question was that this was to comfort Israel, all that God is. He is for his people. If the reason for the trials that we go through that Judah was going through wasn't divine impotence, wasn't divine neglect or divine ignorance, then we must be exactly where the Lord would have us be. And I, I don't want to minimize the brutality of that. That can be really hard. But I think it's better than the alternative, which is God, apparently you're not powerful enough to help. Apparently you don't know what's going on. Apparently you don't care. Look at verses 30 and 31. This is what we should do. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. 
But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, we need help. We don't have to turn to theology in the abstract, the study of a far and distant God. We have a God who has come near, who gives help to all who need it. And who doesn't need it? Isaiah 40 tells us everyone needs it. Isaiah paints a picture of the least likely to need help. Certainly the young will not need the power of God. Ah, but the best of men are men at best. And Isaiah knows, no, even the most powerful among us will grow weary. We all need help. We all need divine enablement. And and perhaps for some of you, that's exactly why the Lord would have you be here this morning, to hear that you cannot do it alone. You need to know that God is the only independent, self-sufficient one. You are not. So many people, they at least want to present the image of, I've got this. That's that's like our motto, I've got this. It's, It's under control. Ladies, there, has, there have never been so many societal pressures placed upon women as there are upon you at this particular moment. You are being asked by our society to be everything that a man is while still being everything that a woman is. And I, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. You're expected to be and to do everything and to do it with grace, charity, dignity, and beauty. You're to have a job. You're to provide for your family. You're to contribute to society. Whatever movement is the flavor of the day. Take care of your kids. Take care of your husband. Find time to serve the Lord on top of all that. You have to keep so many plates spinning, and the reality is that no one can do that. You can't possibly do that. Maybe you've even read Proverbs 31, the story of the Hebrew superwoman. You've thought, who can measure up to that? Right? Well, the answer is no one can. No one can. You can't do all those things. Isaiah 40 is for you. Men, so many of you take seriously the biblical calls to provide for your family, to lead well, and you are exhausting yourself, trying to keep yourself and your family viable in a turbulent, chaotic time, and it is wearying. Isaiah 40 is for you. I think I can say with confidence to every single person here, you don't got this, right? You don't got it. That's an apt motto for God. He's the only one who can say, I got this. No one else can. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you you need to know right off the bat, when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to conquering life and death, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to reconciling yourself to God, You don't got this. Only God can say that. And in Jesus Christ, God has said this to you. You want to be reconciled to me? I've got this. I've got this. You need only to wait on me. And waiting on me means repenting, believing the gospel. The gospel that is preached here Sunday after Sunday, that Christ died for sins and rose that you might live eternally. And if you want to investigate that further, please come back week after week. 
because we're launching into Galatians and we are going to look at the gospel from every imaginable perspective. It's going to be a deep dive into the essence of the gospel. Please come back. But don't even wait for that. Come talk to some person. Come talk to me after the service and say, tell me about this gospel and I will be more than happy. My family is with my, is, is, is with my in-laws right now. I got time. <laughs> I got time. Come and talk to me about that. The picture that is painted here in verses 30 and 31 is stunning. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what are we supposed to do? I've said Isaiah 40 is for you. Isaiah 40 is for you. What are you supposed to do? Here's the answer. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. So, and so, which raises the question, well, what is it to wait on the Lord? I don't know what that is. Sometimes waiting is waiting. Sometimes waiting is waiting. You're not going to get exactly what you want when you want it. You just wait on the Lord's good timing. It's kind of always going to be that way. But most of the time, it's something else is, as well. Waiting is obeying, hoping, trusting, and seeking. Waiting is obeying. Psalm 37, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land you shall look on when the wicked are cut off. Young people, I, I, I suspect this is what waiting is going to look like most of the time for you. Just obey. Just do what the Lord asks you to do. That's how you wait on the Lord. Obeying even if it seems to be the surest path to losing friends. Obeying if it's, even if it seems to be the quickest route to unpopularity. Waiting on the Lord means obeying him when every fiber of your being wants, is screaming out to you to give yourself over to a person that you care desperately about and do things that the Lord would have you wait. Obey. Obey. Waiting is seeking. Lamentations 3 The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's the parallel passage there, seeking the Lord. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So there's something about waiting on the Lord means you cry out to him, you pray to him. Cry out for what you need, but let the Bible inform you as to what you really need. Pray for daily bread, for daily wisdom, for daily strength. Pray with expectation that God can supply what you need. And waiting is always trusting, and it's always hoping. Psalm 27, our call to worship. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait. Psalm 39, now, O Lord, what do I wait? for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the promises of God are only for those who are his people. And the gospel, of course, is the good news that God has done for you what you can never do for yourself so that you might be one of God's people. Christian, waiting is realizing that you, you don't actually got this. That if any good is to be done, if you're going to do any good, then it has to be God doing it. You can't trust in your own strength, but you can trust in God's. You cannot trust in your own sovereignty, but you can trust in God's. And then you look at the passage and you say, well, it talks about mounting up with wings like eagles and soaring with the eagles and I'm waiting on the Lord and I don't feel like I'm flying with the eagles right now. 
I, I was talking with my wife last night. I'll tell you a little bit, just very briefly, what, what has gone on in our family in the last two weeks. I have a daughter who has given birth to twins. Her husband, his father, just died three days after the babies were born. And in the midst of all of that, my father-in-law, my wife's father, had a stroke. And then another one. And, and so, and, and my wife was lying there, we're talking about this passage, and she said, I don't, I don't feel like I'm flying with the eagles right now. I'm tired. I am really tired. And I get that. Even on your best day, you don't feel like you're soaring with the eagles. You don't feel terribly triumphant or valiant right now. You, you were barely able to get to church without sinning too much, right? This is what the Apostle Paul was told by Jesus himself. Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I, Paul, am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I'll bet there weren't too many days where Paul felt like he was flying with the eagles. I'm going to say two things to that very briefly, and then we'll close. The first is this. I think this is deeply symbolic language about flying with the eagles. I don't think it's meant to be literal, but it's speaking of a strength that comes to us that transcends what we think is imaginable at that moment. But I also think this, that in heaven's perspective, when you come to the end of your rope and when you throw yourself upon the mercy of God and he enables you to be faithful in the hard things and in the day-to-day grind of just being a faithful mom or husband or employee or employer, when you do justice and you love the Lord and God is enabling that along the way, I'll bet in heaven's perspective, it's far more grand than flying with the eagles. And that's what the Lord asks of you. But he will enable it. You're more glorious than you think. But I also say this, that waiting on the Lord is always waiting for the Christian Our promises are, okay, we got this deep symbolic language, but one day God is going to materially and perfectly and in reality go far beyond that. Listen to the vision that John has of the destiny of everyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Christian, Gresham Bible, that's us. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Christian, that is your destiny, and it trumps any soaring with the eagles right now. God will keep his promises. He cannot but do that, and he will never ever be our debtor. He will always pay and reward 
immeasurably more than we deserve, immeasurably more than we could hope or ask for. And we know that because we know that we are his people, because we have Christ. And in Christ, we have God. GBC, behold your God, the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God, who more than anything else delights in going by this name, your God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this uh, wonderful truth. Thank you for doing more than all we could ask or imagine. And we pray that you would give us, even in these next few moments, clarity of thought and faith and hope. It's a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.